0: Let's pray and uh, we'll get into this parable here. Lord, we thank you that uh, you're a God that is uh, ever watching over us, that you're a God that cares, uh, that we don't need to be burdened by our anxieties and our worries because you care for us. And so Lord, we pray that uh, we would rest in that, that kind of a knowledge. Lord, we pray as we look at your parable here this evening that uh, we would be reminded of the fact that with great uh, privilege comes great responsibility. And for those that uh, reject uh, what you've given them to do, that it comes at great cost. And so uh, help us to learn from this parable uh, that uh, you designed for a certain group of people. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. We turn to Matthew 21. That's uh, where we'll go tonight. Uh, there are three different passages we could look at, but we are going to go with the, with the one that we looked at last week. Uh, Jesus is in the midst of uh, being confronted by religious leaders who on the Tuesday of the Passion Week are asking him by what authority and what right do you have to do and say these things? And uh, his response, ask him about John's baptism. Is it from heaven or from earth? And then gave them the parable last week of the what? What did we look at last week? Those that were here, all four of you, seven of you. It was a sparse crowd last week, but um, it was parable of the two sons. You have the one son who's The good son, supposedly, and one who's the bad son. The bad son goes, nope, don't want to do that, but goes out to the field. And the other son goes, sure, dad, I'll go out. And doesn't bother to go out. And the Lord goes, which one is the the better son? It's the one who, yeah, listens to what his dad says ultimately and does what he says. And he says, that son's like the publicans and the prostitutes who came responding to the message initially, what God said to do. They weren't doing it. But when the message of repentance came of John the Baptist, they responded. They did the works that God wanted. Whereas the Pharisees are like that son, yes, dad, you know, we'll do what you say, and then they don't bother to do it. And he said, they're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but you as the the Pharisees and the priests are not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. That's the first parable. Because right after this, when we look at the the start of this one, it just simply says uh, here in verse number 33 of Matthew chapter 21, uh, and another parable. Um, I need to turn there. I was in Mark uh, looking at that passage. Uh, it says this: Hear another parable. Okay, so he gave you the first one. Hear another one, and so you have to remember he's speaking to the same group, religious leaders and the like. But this parable requires you to have a Jewish mindset. Because when he starts telling this, this parable would ring in the ears of the the individuals that are there and go, we know what he's talking about with this parable without him saying all the details and explaining all the details. Because the details of this parable was something that were sung regularly in the synagogue services. They would sing a song, and it would be the song that is found in Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. That's your blank there. They would be familiar when Jesus starts telling a parable, oh, hey, this sounds kind of like what we sing regularly and what we know about, and the religious leaders would have led in this as far as the Pharisees and the like. So before we even read the parable, you need to put your spot here and go back to Isaiah chapter 5 because this will make this parable make all sorts of sense and why the Lord didn't explain the details because he had already explained some of the details some 700 years before. Isaiah chapter 5 Verse 1 says this, "'Now will I sing to my well-beloved "'a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. "'My well-beloved had a vineyard "'in a very fruitful hill, "'and he fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, "'and planted it with the choicest vine "'and built a tower in the midst of it, "'and also made a winepress therein. "'And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, "'and it brought forth wild grapes.'" And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. Now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, uh, rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, and behold, a cry. See, what you have in this song that uh, would have been sung, it was a story of a what you would expect if you had a good hillside there in Israel. And when we were over there, you find uh, on these hillsides either banana plants or vineyards or the like. They, they have all sorts of uh, stuff because they, in that sun, uh, get good rain, and then it grows uh, some of these crops well. Here you've got a hillside uh, that is there. It's walled, it's well dug, it's well protected by a tower. The expectation of the owner was that the vineyard would bring forth delicious grapes. However, when the harvest came, it brought forth bitter and worthless grapes. There's not much more the owner could do. He tore it down and let it grow. Now, God gives the explanation. God himself gives the explanation here, just as Jesus oftentimes did, but God the Father here is giving the explanation he says this The vineyard is the nation of Israel. And the men of Judah are a, a part of this. And you think through this, the fruit that he was looking for was justice. That the leaders would do the things that were right and making decisions and carry that out. That the, the orphans and the widows would be defended like they should when they had no defense. But what they've got is the leaders there are oppressing people. You read what's going on in the book of Mike and Isaiah. Contemporaries, uh, the leadership is uh, running over people and and taking from them uh, and uh, not defending the defenseless. The other side of this, he looked for righteousness but as our our text here says, he got a cry. The idea of this is that it's, he didn't get uh, um, righteousness, he got rebellion. This is a cry of rebellion. They're they're shaking their fist and going, no, we aren't going to do that. Uh, And The Lord just says, okay, fine. Now, for the nation of Israel, this happened, uh, what Isaiah said uh, here uh, about 100 years later, uh, you found this happened to the city of Jerusalem. 70 years, uh, the city is empty. It grows over. There's no walls uh, there for that city. Nehemiah has to eventually come back and rebuild those walls. It's a desolate place. It's empty. I mean, what more could he do for people? He's given them the law. He's got the temple there. He's got prophets that come. And none of those individuals actually have any uh, impact on these people, and they just go their own way. They're stubbornly rebelling, and they're doing their own thing. And God goes, fine. I'm just going to let you go your own way. That is the background to this as the Lord begins to tell this parable. And I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 21 because this is, uh, the details are there, okay? You understand already. Vineyard is the nation of Israel. There's a looking for fruit that's uh, coming forth. The owner is God uh, and uh, looking for uh, fruit to come forth. And what you have is the echoes of a parable in the parable here of this story. And I just want to start in verse number 33 and read through this. It says this here, another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw, saw the son... They said among themselves, Aha, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do to the husbandmen? The answer is this, They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their season." So read the paragraph, Jesus told parables seem to have all the same elements of the original, however, some characters and elements are added. You go, what are the characters and elements that are added to this story? First, the owner has husbandmen, or we would call them tenant farmers. You know, from our culture, Sharecroppers. People who work a piece of property that's not necessarily theirs. They're allowed to gain some from the property, but they're supposed to send the best uh, and give the best to the, the owner himself. Uh, these individuals uh, were to work the vineyard, but send off the best fruit to the owner. So that's the first element that we didn't have in the other story. We didn't have any husbandman taking care of the field, tenant, for nothing. It was just he did the field, it was uh, taken care of, didn't bring forth fruit. Here you have these tenants that are there. Secondly, the owner sent messengers to pick up the fruit from the vineyard. What you don't have in the previous story is that uh, the owner's at a distance. It seems like the owner's right there, but in this story, the owner's at a distance. So he's sending messengers to carry this stuff back that he's looking for. And uh, as they show up, they're mistreated, beaten, stoned, and even some of them killed. So they would not, as uh, I believe it's in Mark chapter twelve, it just says they they send them back empty-handed. They're not sending anything back, besides mistreating them. They aren't, you know, they don't care that the master, the owner, has called for this. Finally, the bottom paragraph: the owner sent his son because he assumed that the tenants would have respect to the son. Now, I'm just kind of going, okay, well, if they'd mistreated the messengers, why would you think, you know, these people's character would change any? But there there was in that culture, okay, you know, you might shoot the messenger, but you won't shoot the one who's sending the message, which the son would be the exact representative of the father. So maybe there was that kind of a thought in the, the father's mind that they would have at least some fear of the son himself. However, the tenants reason incorrectly that if they kill the son, they would become the owners of the property. Somehow it would be theirs by killing off the son. They take him outside the vineyard, which is important. We'll talk about this in a second. They take him outside the vineyard and they kill him. Now the question at the top of the page was asked at the end of the parable, what will the owner do when he shows up? I mean, if, if you had this happen and your child was killed, let alone all of your messengers, and you had the authority to do it, what would you go and do? You know what? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. I mean, I, you know, I had these kind of feelings this morning where they, they captured this guy in Pennsylvania I thought he was a mur- you know, just a murderer in the States and an illegal. He had actually killed somebody in Brazil and then escaped here and then killed somebody when they, they got here. And you're just like, why did they even bother wasting all the resources on him? You know, that, that's kind of the feeling I had as I was you know, thinking through this. You know, all right, we expect the owner to come back and do something to repay exact Vengeance. You'd expect that to happen. you expect him to destroy the tenants and hire new tenants that would work to give the owner good fruit. Okay, that's that's the, the hint here. He's going to get new tenants, new people to stay there to work the field, to work the crops. So here's the fulfillment of the tenants. And for us, there is uh, something else that is, very familiar to the Jews, it's going to go on in the response to Jesus after he gets this statement made and they confirm, okay, there's going to be judgment for those tenant farmers. The quote, uh, and we would not normally think of this, but he suddenly quotes the scripture. Look at verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures... The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Anybody got a a center column reference that tells you what that passage is? 118, and 23. Psalm 118, 22, and 23. That's the blank that's there. This psalm, if you've ever read it, is one of the most quoted psalms outside of uh, Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Not specifically this alone. There's other portions of it, but the last part as you read through Psalm 118 has this reference. It also has, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You've ever heard that passage before if you've ever been to Camp Joy. When it's referring to that, this is the day which the Lord hath made. In the book of Acts, as Peter is preaching a message, he refers that to the fact that it's not referring to any day, it's referring to Resurrection Day. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has accomplished the greatest feat. This is the event that makes Jesus, well, you would say, makes Jesus really who he is the one who can give life. He displays it for all humanity to see. But before this, you have this statement that's made uh, that is talking about a chief cornerstone that is rejected by builders. And, and what we have here is a mixing of metaphors. You say, it's not good to mix metaphors. I tried to think of a, a mixed metaphor on the fly this morning. Anybody got a mixed metaphor they can think of tonight? i you know, you're, you're taking two things and putting them together. It's like saying, you know, he went to bat and he scored a goal. You're like, wait a second, that's, that's two different sports, you know, okay? We, we, we get the idea that he came up and he accomplished something. You know, that doesn't work. It does here. You, know, what, you got one? Uh-oh. I, read, I actually read this in a book uh, last night. And my wife and I were laughing about it. Sharp as a whip. Oh, sharp as a whip. Okay, yeah. Good. Uh yeah, how do you you know the sharp whip? All right. Um you could get a sharp whip if you had glass in it, but yeah, you know, still you don't want to sharper the whip. It's not a good you know, thing. So but yeah, so you got a mixed metaphor here because the Lord's talking about vineyards and all of a sudden he starts talking buildings. Like, wait a second. He was just talking about a vineyard, but he's talking about a building, but the people who are the builders here are equal to the tenant farmers. And this goes back to a story, and, and whether it's true or not, you, you, you don't know, but it's got some historical bearing possibly on the fact that when they were building the temple, you had to quarry the rocks at a distance and then send them in. And when you got to this uh, occasion where one of the stones was sent in, the builders were looking at this and going, okay, they made a mistake here. I don't know what's wrong with this. And they set that stone aside and just said, okay, let's work on the rest of this. And they got done with the building and realized the temple, they did not have the chief stone, the cornerstone, the capstone of the whole thing. And suddenly they realized, oh, that stone they sent us was the capstone. We didn't recognize it as that. We rejected it. And supposedly in the story, they finally realized it and put the capstone in. That's the, the supposed story behind all of this. Which, okay, here you have then a story. Tenants reject the sun. Builders reject the chief cornerstone. These two individuals uh, are equal in in comparison, and so the Lord uh, takes this, the builders and tenants are the same as you have there in the end of that paragraph. And then it says this, Jesus applied these two characters directly to the religious rulers of the nation of Israel. The leaders had been the ones rejecting the prophets throughout the years. You say, okay, so where is that at? Well, look at verse number 43. Therefore say I unto you the kingdom of God shall be taken from you given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof whosoever shall fall on the stone shall, or this whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken and on whomsoever it shall fall it will grind them to powder chief priests and pharisees heard this parable and perceived that he spake of them but they, when they sought to lay hands on him they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet Okay. What is going on is that there's this hint, okay, you have individuals that for generations have rejected prophets. They, they've been doing this. God had sent prophets to the nation of Israel year after year after year, and to be a prophet really wasn't huh, profitable. Uh, it was not a, a good thing to get into. Because normally you got abused and beat up if you were a prophet. You know, we look back and go, wow, these prophets, great individuals, they were so helpful uh, to us and whatever. No, to be a prophet back then was usually meaning, okay, I'm just going to hang a sign of shame on me already and uh, I'm just going to live my life out as an example of shame and abuse. And so you just think through the, the, the prophets that start off and you have a prophet that's one of the, you know, you have Moses and, and, and Samuel, but you start having a whole bunch of prophets during the time of kings. And, and the, the chief one of that one is Elijah. But think during his time frame, uh, there's a guy by the name of Ahab and they're killing off prophets by, you know, large numbers. Uh, If it wasn't for Obadiah hiding people in caves, you would have probably had many of the prophets eliminated, wiped out, but you have them being killed. You think about a good king by the name of Joash. I was just reading this last uh, week, uh, and Joash was a a good king. He's the one who was rescued as a baby from his wicked queen uh, grandmother. He was trying to wipe out all the population of uh, grandchildren and children so that she could become the ruler of the nation of Israel, and he gets saved out by a man by the name of Jehoiada. Jehoiada finally brings him in when he's seven years of age, and they get rid of Queen Athaliah, and Joash is a great king till Jehoiada dies. Joash starts falling off and doing things he shouldn't be, and Jehoiada's son comes along by the name of Zedekiah. Or Zechariah, excuse me, not Zedekiah. Zechariah, and he comes along, and he says some things to Joash, and Joash gets mad, and they murder him right in the temple. Execute him there in the place that's supposed to be the house of prayer. They, they kill him. Um, we think about the, the greatest prophet. I just got done reading this man's book today um, Isaiah. Do you know how he died? Hebrews 11 hints at it. We we aren't told in uh, the Old Testament, but Hebrews 11 uh, hints at it. Uh, He was sawn asunder by Manasseh. You know, they put him in a piece of wood and cut him in half uh, because Isaiah was proclaiming a message that Manasseh didn't like. That's how he got rid of him. And you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and the stories there at the end, you know, we have, you know, Abraham and Moses and all these people, Noah, doing fantastic things, but you get to the end and it's talking about people living in sheepskin and skin, living in dens and caves and, and being, you know, it's talking about the prophets. And you go, who was leading this out? It was the leadership leading out on this. Now you have the prophet, as you have in your, your notes there, now the greatest prophet from God had come, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. You know, various times in diverse manners through the prophets, uh, through the scripture of the prophets, uh, God has spoken. But now in these times, so here you have the prophet, the son, who showed up. And guess what the leader's response is going to be? Even though he's the son and he's a prophet, they're going to treat him just as if he was a prophet or the son in that story. They're going to reject him and have him killed. They had not shown, and here's a, the, the statement these leaders had not shown the repentance and righteousness God wanted, but had been violent and rebellious. This is, this is going back to that story in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 5. Lord's looking for fruits of justice, and he's getting violence. And he's looking for fruits of righteousness, and he's getting rebellion. That's what these individuals are doing. John comes preaching, you need to repent. And John, being one of the last of the prophets, uh, he comes along, and people reject him. They don't want him as far as leadership. The people love him. But the leadership doesn't want them and and, uh, so they uh, are frustrated with John's message of repentance and then Jesus comes along and he's preaching the same thing. That doesn't go along with their picture of them being righteous. We're so good, we don't need repentance and and their whole thing with that. And so they were okay with John being executed. They were okay with Jesus uh, in uh, just less than a week being executed on a cross. They were fine with that because they were rebellious at heart and would not accept the message of repentance. Their responsibility and privilege, the second to last paragraph, of teaching the nation of Israel was going to go to somebody else. That, that's, that's the opportunity they had, to be the teachers of the nation of Israel, to be the ones, you know, you say this about teachers, we have the chance to affect young minds shape young minds. You have this opportunity. Well, here the priests and the Pharisees have the opportunity to shape the attitude and the minds of the nation and to teach them what's right and they won't do it. And what do you do when someone doesn't do a good job at teaching? You leave them and pay them a larger salary. That's how it works. City of Chicago. Right, of a teacher taught for 20 years and was never in class and they were paying her somewhere in Canada. I was like, really? Anyhow, but you would fire him. Well, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to fire the Pharisees and the priests from their job. And what is he going to do? He's going to give it to another people or another group of people who are going to do the job. Now, the question is, what nation or who is he talking about that's going to do this? That's going to take up the job of teaching the nation of Israel about the kingdom, about the good news. Now there's, there's two choices. You look at the commentators and they, they, will, they will give you these two different choices. And either one of them is fine. When we get to heaven, we'll get the exact answer on which one the Lord was exactly meaning by this. And it could be a combination. The first one is this, is that it, it would be the Jews. Okay, you go, what Jews? The Jews who will rise up during the tribulation and teach the nation of Israel before the son, of, uh, son ushers in the kingdom. You read through the book of Revelation and you have an occasion where you start reading and you start seeing this number, 144,000. And you go, what is the 144,000 made up of? It's made up of Jewish males... 12,000 from each tribe, and what are they doing? They're preaching a message, the gospel, and as you understand, when the tribulation happens, the church is gone. Okay, this is the church age right now. God's not working with the nation of Israel. Though Jews can get saved, that's, I mean, he allows for that. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. But he's not working specifically with the nation of Israel. When the church leaves uh, and the tribulation starts, my opinion is this, is that you have two witnesses. Divine witnesses, individuals who can call down fire and change water into blood. Say, sounds like Moses and Elijah. I'm of the opinion that it is Moses and Elijah. And they start preaching a message, and the the first responders to this are these 144,000 that take up as their goal to teach not only the nation of Israel, but the nations about what God has done in sending his son, that there's an offer of a new covenant and a new heart, and they go out and preach this message, and they do it till their death. But there are people that are both Jews and Gentiles that get saved. You read in the tribulation times that there's multitudes of people uh, of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that get saved during the tribulation time, that they are effective in their message, but it's these Jews And you say, okay, it could be referring to that group and that when the kingdom is near to coming again, you have this rising up of the witnesses, you have a rising up of these prophets, you might call them, preachers, 144,000 that are going out and doing the work of preaching the good news. That's one possibility. And the other possibility may just be as simple as this, which it's got a few problems with this. Uh, The second could be a reference to the church, which is a combination of both Jews and Gentiles that share the good news until Jesus comes back. They're working in the field now. Uh, And that could be the case, which we have to realize that the church disappears right before the tribulation starts. And so, you know, this, you know, using the word church is not the best of things. Um, and you have to realize anybody that's saved before the tribulation is raptured out before that happens. So you're starting with a whole new group. So, you know, it, it could be referenced to right now, the fields being worked. Um, I, I don't know that I have a specific opinion on which one. I, I like better, and as I said, it could be just a combination that the Jews have lost their privilege, the leadership has, and it's going to go to somebody else. Okay, so, but the Lord says it goes to another nation, a uh, group. Now, the end of this, the response to this parable showed that it had hit the mark. Jesus had gotten what he wanted across, and it was very obvious to them, the rulers would have taken Jesus because he had spoken against them. However, the rulers were afraid of the people because the people thought that Jesus was a prophet. Okay. They thought he was a prophet, and so if they were to beat up this prophet in a public setting like uh, the Feast of the Passover, you know, they finally get to the point where they're willing to do that, but at this point, they're not ready yet. They take them a couple more days to get up their courage to get him crucified. But at this point, they believe he's a prophet. Now, I got to ask a question this morning, and, and uh, it was this, is, okay, you know, do you believe the Jews are the, you know, the Jews are the ones who do this in the tribulation, whatever, and, you know, why are there seem to be an emphasis on prophets? Well, there is a, besides the idea of a kingdom going on in the nation of Israel, you know, they just had the triumphant entry two days before, they're thinking the king's showing up to set up a kingdom, and they're fervent about this, there was before Jesus showed up a fervency for a prophet. And you go, why was there a fervency for a prophet? Because Malachi, the last book written, 420 years before Jesus shows up, uh, there is the last chapter that you read the, the two last chapters that you read, it talks about this that Elijah shall come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so people were looking for Elijah. This is why John the Baptist is asked, are you Elijah? This is why Jesus is asked, are you Elijah or a prophet? And so there was a fervency for people to go see prophets when John showed up in the desert. I mean, you don't get much you don't get much description of people's clothing in the Bible. And the people we do get aren't really all that great, you know, as far as what they're wearing. But we know what Elijah wore, and we know what John the Baptist wore. The story of Elijah, uh, how we know what he's like, is that uh, in First Kings chapter one, you have the story of um, I think it's a ah- uh, a or a ah- excuse me, uh, as king that he's going to die. He falls through the latticework, work, and he's he's dying. So he sends off a message to Baal and find out if he's going to survive and it gets intercepted by Elijah. Elijah comes and gives the messenger a message and says, don't even bother to go there. Go back and tell the king he's not going to make it. He's not going to leave the house. And so when the messenger comes back, the king goes, well, who told you this? And he gives a description. He's a very hairy man. And he goes, ah, it's Elijah. Now, my understanding of what hairy man when I was a kid was, is, okay, big hair, large beard, you know, you know, you can see him coming into the presence of Ahab and the, you know, his hair swirling everywhere and he tells him that it's... No, that's not what he looked like. What it means is he's a hairy man. He's wearing a hairy garment. And you go, was that normal for people to wear No. No, they, they didn't wear outfits like that. In fact, they normally wore that when they were in mourning. And he's wearing his regular garb. It's like wearing a wool sweater on a hot day scratchy wool sweater they've gotten some wool sweaters better now but you can get some scratchy ones and you're miserable what's john the baptist wearing john the baptist is wearing a big belt like what elijah had and he's wearing a camel's hair garment so when he starts preaching people are like oh, elijah and they go running out there because they're going it's elijah 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 it's got to be him and so there's an excitement and fervency because they, okay, the people are suddenly going, okay, this is Elijah who's supposed to come. And the Lord even kind of says to people, if you paid attention to his message, he is the Elijah that's supposed to come. You repent like he, he said, he's the one prepping the way for me. You're ready to receive the message that I'm about to preach. Uh, so there was a, a fervency about prophets during this time amongst the people. But the leadership, on the other hand, is not excited about them because these prophets are combating them um, in what they're doing as far as what they'd set up as far as religion, and they didn't like it. So there was a a fervency like this where people were looking for the prophet, a prophet, a prophet Elijah um, in this time frame, along with looking for a king. They were looking for both. So, anyhow... But any other questions, uh, thoughts on this as you've gone through this? But um, you're getting pretty pointed here. I mean, we aren't even to Matthew 23, which we won't even go over the parables. But if you want to read some pretty tough language, Lord's denunciation of the Pharisees is same week, all of this, so...